0: Lord, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful for the beauty of it and that you've called us together to be a part of your church and to study and grow through you. And as we open up your word, especially your gospels tonight, Lord, speak to us about your life. Move through us that we might be able and willing to learn and be transformed by you. These things we ask and pray in your name. Amen. So last week we talked about how we have a story to tell, and it's good news and it's always a good time for. Good news, and so I thought the next place we should go once we decide that there's good news and we need to tell it is to go to the books that are called what? Good news. That's what gospel uh, means. Gospel means the good news, and it it, those are usually the ones I always assume y'all know, but I I just say it anyway. I assume uh, uh, all this, but it's better to go over the gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, As you recall. Uh, they're written in the time of Jesus. And, and one of the things we need to understand as we go to the Gospels is what the society around Jesus looked like. If you want to open to Mark, we're going to be there in a minute, Mark, the first chapter. But as, as we begin, let's look at the world of, of Jesus for a second. And you may say, we've talked about the world of Jesus. It's okay. You can hear it again. Um, we need to understand it if we're going to read faithfully the Gospels. First of all, there's a rigid class structure. Think India today. Think uh, I'm trying to think of some other class structures. But it 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 is you were what you were born into is what you were. Uh, if your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was a priest, you were a priest. Uh, if your if your dad was a, a a noble, you were a noble. If your dad was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. That's how it worked. You were born into whatever you were, and your main goal in life. Uh, was to keep the same status that your family had or to add to it, to add to that status. So your name was everything. I like to say it was like the South was about 30 years ago where your name was your bond and you didn't have to have contracts and a good name was to be valued. It's that kind of thing. You, your family mattered and your family name mattered. Uh, you had these urban elites When I say urban elites, and I'm talking about the Israelites, where's urban? What's urban for the Israelites? It's a famous city on a hill. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? That's where the elites live. Now, there are other cities, but but when I'm talking about urban elites, I'm mainly talking about uh, Jerusalem. Those urban elites, uh, if you read through your scripture, um, those urban elites, when you get to them, are going to be people like the Sadducees. Uh, Sadducees and Pharisees are not the same people. Don't get confused. Remember, Pharisees are lawyers uh, of the well, lawyers, not the way we think of lawyers, but they're experts in the, the law. And they are folks that are trying to uh, live out their faith kind of in opposition to Rome. Rome is the dominant force, right? And the Pharisees, Uh, say they want to live out their faith and live out the law in opposition to Rome. We think of Pharisees as bad people. If we had Pharisees around us today, we'd say those are the salt of the earth people. And why I say that is because they would be the folks that were standing up for their faith in light of this occupation. Then you say, well, if that's the Pharisees, what are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the folks that believed the best way to keep Judaism going because that's what they were both trying to do. Both of them trying to keep Judaism going. One thought the best way to keep Judaism going was to oppose Rome. Who's that? That's the Pharisees. The ones that thought the best way to keep Judaism going was to go along to get along. And those folks are the Sadducees. They thought if we just work with Rome, they'll let us keep our faith. If we'll just go along to get along, they'll let us keep our faith. They're also part of that elite. That's the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. We'll get to them in a minute. Sadducees, the Herodians. Herodians sounds like what? Herod. So where do you think the Herodians came from? Herod. Herod the Great. That's the royal family, right? That's the royal family. That came in, uh, part of the Hasmoneans and all that stuff. The Herodians and the landed aristocracy, uh, especially Romans that were considered elite. They come in there, but also Jewish elite. Uh, those Sadducees and Herodians are the keepers of the tradition and the law. Uh, they, they also bribed political officials. That's how they kept the wheels running. They, that's how they made things happen. They, for the most part, they were the ones that had the means and the resources to influence the politics of the day. They made up about 2 to 5% of the population. So they're a small, small group of people, uh, the 2 to 5%. Uh, the Sadducees were born into their position, um, and, and that's who they were. Then you have peasants and non-elites. What do you think Jesus was born into? Peasants and non-elite. His dad's a carpenter. Uh, his wife and her family, all peasants, all from the smaller places uh, around uh, urban non-elites would be your peasants that actually lived in the, the city, right? They're the poorer folks there. Uh, what, what's missing in, in that? If that makes up 5% and the other 95% are peasants and non-elite, what does that tell you about the society? What's missing? Middle the middle class, that's right. No middle class or very, very minute middle class. You have the haves and the have-nots. Uh, that's all you've got. Uh, these are the workers, the farmers, the farmers, the artisans, that kind of stuff. Those are the folks that make up this category. And, and their life was uh, very difficult. They had a hard road to hoe. And if you ever forget that they had a hard road to hoe, think about the birth story of Jesus. What did it say? Mary was great with child, and what did she have to do? Move. She had to move to go pay taxes. We think of it as like a little journey, but really they had to relocate uh, the family uh, to Bethlehem uh, or the place of his birth so they could pay taxes. There, there were also, the, I said there are two groups. There's actually a third group, and it's the folks you may not think about. There, you have those that are upper class and those that are lower class, and then you have the third group, which is those with, anybody guess? No class. Bonnie knows. She's making a list and keeping it twice. Right? Those with no class. In Jesus' day and time, who had no class? Anybody remember your Bible stories? Who do you think's got no class? The leper's sick. If you're sick, you have no class. Slaves Slaves have no class. Women Women have no class. Children have no class. You got it. You pretty much much nailed it. those are your, your folks. And also, no class, Also, because we, we named all these folks uh, uh, that don't work and can't hold property and that kind of stuff. But we also forget there are certain professions in that te- New Testament world that are considered no class because they can't keep the cleanliness uh, rituals of the day. Uh, for instance, that'd be you know, a Jewish person that slaughtered hogs. Um, somebody, uh, that collected garbage, somebody that picked up dead bodies, folks that couldn't, couldn't follow the ritual purity stuff of Judaism. And then you had a special class uh, of folks that we'll call the retainers. That's the Pharisees. They're the ones that are, are tasked with retaining the tradition. They're the ones that you go to when you have a question about the faith. They are peasants. Uh, they're, they're not like peasants. But, but they're interesting because they have no power on their own. They're not of the elite social class, so they don't have power like social power. What they have power in is that they are experts at the law. So what they do gives them an authority in society that they don't have personally. Um, that they don't have personally. Um, and, and I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a good way to... Uh, to, 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 to illuminate that. Oh, it's kind of like this. Well, uh, Any of y'all ever lived in the Delta? Anybody lived in the Delta? I have. I lived in the Arkansas Delta. I don't know if it's like the Mississippi Delta. I can tell you about the Mississippi Delta. Is it? Okay. So Mississippi Delta, it, they, 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 if you ever go to the Mississippi Delta, they're all beautiful. Most of them are beautiful people. And I asked one time why they're beautiful, and then I realized they just all marry each other. That's how they stay beautiful. And I don't mean that as an insult. I'm I'm not talking about like they marry in families. I'm talking about if you're from the Delta, you tend to find somebody from the Delta and y'all are both beautiful. So you make beautiful children for the most part. But what I figured out was you couldn't move into the Delta and be accepted because they didn't know who you were. Like for 500 years, people have been in the the Delta and they know each other and they're not going to let you in. So, so... Everybody would tell me how hard it was to get in the Delta. And I would always tell them that the Delta was a wonderful place. They treated me royally. Every time, they, they treated me like a king most of the time. It was awesome being in the Delta. I said, I don't know why more preachers don't want to go to the Delta. It was great. But then I realized when I talked to other folks that had moved in for a job or something, that they really were excluded. And I go, well, what's the difference? And they go, preachers get an honorary membership card because they are the preacher that everybody else doesn't get that's what i say when i say that the pharisees are a special class in jewish society they get an honorary card that they are important because they are the keepers of the law they're the ones that keep it all straight uh, because they're the ones that people would go to and go you need to tell us what the torah says about this so that we can structure our lives in the right way uh, purity status and class structures are all intertwined purity in class purity in class purity in class if you went below your class you you made yourself impure vice versa um, the symbolic power is that those who are born on the bottom and we need to know this as we read the gospels because it it factors the way we read it those on the bottom don't have any way to get to the top there is no american dream what's the american dream if you work hard enough you can make something of yourself no matter who your parents were back then that that's not the case if you're on the bottom stay there if you're at the top we're going to stay here that's how we like things that's how it works um the only thing that would affect that is what illness right because you have wealthy people throughout the gospels if we read the gospels We have wealthy people who have been abandoned by their family because they are sick. Uh, They're sick and their family just cuts them off because they don't want that shame brought on them. Why does it bring shame to them? Because they're not sick because they have a genetic disease. They're not sick because they've got an infection. Why are they sick? Because God is punishing them for something. Or God is punishing the family for something. So let me ask you, if, uh, uh, if you're in Jesus' time and your family's got a good name around Nazareth or around Bethlehem or around Jerusalem and your child gets sick, um, now we, we like to think the way we'd act, but here's how they would act back then. They're going to get that child out of the family so that they don't bring shame upon themselves. We go. That's terrible. Well, that's how it was. That's what they would do. Um, so that these. This is how. This is the struggle that's there between the haves and the have-nots. Um, the high priests are the wealthiest and most politically powerful of society. When we talk about Caiaphas, right? The high priest. Know this: Caiaphas is loaded, and Caiaphas is influential. He would not be where he was if he was not influential. Yeah. He He has the the wealth of the temple. The priest oversee the the temple money. So it's there. Yeah. Their, yeah. It's like a, when I was in Morton, I drove by somebody's house one time, and it was a better house than most people I had in Morton. I said, well, Mama, who, who lives there? And she said, that's the such-and-such such preacher of a different denomination, and all the offering flows through. In that denomination, all the money flows through the preacher before it goes anywhere else. And I said, oh, well, that's nice. That's how that works. Um, but that's, that's kind of how, you know. But he, in order for him to be a high priest, he would still had to have been from a very influential uh, family. Very influential lineage. Yes. And it's it's like I tell people all the time. Uh, People come up to me uh, uh, when I first uh, started ministry, not so much now, but they'd come up to me and go, you'll be a bishop one day. And I go, I'll never be a bishop. For one, I went to MTS. People that go to MTS don't get to be uh, bishop. But there's a second reason I won't be bishop. Can you guess what that is? Because I hadn't been working at it. I love these people that pretend like they got elected bishop and they just, it was just because everybody noticed how wonderful they were and holy they were. Uh uh. In order to be elected bishop, you start working at it early. I have friends that want to be bishops. You know what they did? They went to Mill Saps. And then they went to Candler or they went to Duke or they went to one of the fancy Methodist seminaries and they got on a staff at a large church and they got to be elected to stuff and they started like 20. If you get it, I'm telling you, friends, if you get it, you have worked at it most of your life. Uh, nobody just happens into it and uh judy can tell you the folks that get elected at annual conference to represent the church do they just show up and folks go we admire and respect your leadership so much that we just want to put you up even though you hadn't said anything about it is that how it works no they put pamphlets out in the bathroom for you to get that give you a list of people to vote for i do i'm not kidding you uh if you believe this vote for these 10 people and guess what happens Those 10 people get elected. Well, you'd love to think, well, that's just because they're such wonderful people. No, it's because they worked at it. He's a high priest because he worked at it. It's just like politics. It's the worst politics you ever seen. I can hear everything, Marianne. You can't whisper back there. It is politics extraordinaire. I can assure you that the one thing your preacher right now never gets involved in is politics. If you ever go to annual conference, look in the back right corner, because that's where I'm standing. And I'm usually visiting with somebody, because I don't care about all that stuff. Um, but that's, that's Caiaphas. Has, he, they work for it. The high priest, wealthiest, most political. And the ten. Temp- That's because the temple is Washington, D.C., and Lake Junaluska, and Rome, and everything all wrapped into one. Remember, there's no politics without religion back then. It all funnels through Jerusalem. It all goes there, and the high priest has control of it. The temple is the center of political, religious, and social life of the first century Mediterranean world. Everything's about the temple, 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 temple. And we need to remember that because as we read the gospels, we have to recall what happened after Jesus, but before the gospels were written. Do you remember? What, ha- what did Rome do to the temple? Wiped it out. That's important because if your world revolves around a building, what happens when the building ain't there? Uh, when when I was serving Belzona, a tornado came through the back of town, flits, flung off of Hurricane Rita. Everybody got damaged from Katrina and we got damaged from Rita. It, it wiped out a whole street in Belzona uh, and killed a man. And, but it missed the church, but everybody w- wanted to know, was the church okay and were we still going to have church? And I told them, even if there was just a slab there, we were going to have church because the church is not the building it's where two or more gather in the name um, that's what jerusalem that's what they had to figure out with judaism after the temple was destroyed because they had built their their whole stuff around temple and temple sacrifice and temple culture and and that kind of stuff uh, roman occupation was a source of intense conflict They were occupied. It was their Red Dawn type situation. You may not have seen Red Dawn. Um, Watch it. Patrick Swayze's in there. But it's that kind of situation. Rome is taken over. Um, They taxed uh, them mercilessly. Taxed and taxed and taxed and taxed and taxed. They humiliated their captives. We've said this before. Crucifixion was their chosen form of punishment if Sinatopia rebelled against rome they would come in and kill every man woman and child and they would line the the trees coming into that town with crucified bodies you know why because they didn't care about your town but they wanted everybody else to know when you oppose rome guess what we're going to nail you all to trees and if they didn't do that, they would humiliate you by making you... They would desecrate the temples. They would desecrate the synagogues. They would do all that kind of stuff. Uh, they dishonored the Jewish religion by making them bow down to Rome. Uh, and, uh, and you got Herod Antipas, who's building uh, Roman cities in Galilee so that he can have better control over the Galileans. Galilee, for the longest time... Galilee didn't have to worry about Rome so much because Rome was more worried about uh, Jerusalem. And the countryside was kind of like, you know, the country folk or just the country folk, leave them alone. But after Herod Antipas, remember Herod the Great's kingdom gets split into three pieces by his three sons. And Herod Antipas gets Galilee. And so Herod Antipas, since he's got Galilee, wants to tax it. So what does he do? He moves in to Galilee so he can keep an eye on folk. Um, that's what we find in this, uh, modern world. As we move into this, um, uh, I'm gonna find my page while I'm looking, turn to Mark with me, cause that's where we're fixing to, to go. It's into this world that Jesus enters in. Uh, and when Jesus enters in, he causes great, um, uh, fluctuation, although he is not unique in what he is doing. Uh, That's what we get confused. We think Jesus was the only Messiah. He wasn't. There was a Messiah all the time. And usually they would stir things up and then Rome would come in and do exactly what they did to Jesus. Uh, There there wasn't much difference there. Mark begins his gospel with a nod backwards to the Old Testament, right? Uh, Look at it in verse 1. You see that? The beginning of the good news, this is the oldest gospel. Mark is the oldest, the shortest, the most to the point. Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark his structure so that they can put it together. Um, Before we read into that, Mark was written, uh, who gets credit for writing the book of Mark? John Mark, right? John Mark gets the credit. Uh, Do we know whether John Mark wrote it or not? That's what tradition says. Uh, The great part about it is it's from John Mark's community. So even if John didn't write it himself, it was from his tradition. The tradition says what? That John got it. I mean, Mark got it from uh, Peter as Peter was being uh, uh, executed. So we find that's where this gospel community comes from. Mark is written mainly in Greek. Greek. That's why we don't know whether Mark is actually the one that wrote it or if he just it was his community that put it out. It was written in Greek. Most of the first century folks that followed Jesus probably would not have written Greek. They probably knew Greek to a certain extent, but they probably would not have written it. What would his first language have been? It wouldn't even be Hebrew. It would be Aramaic. Um, you'd have Aramaic as his primary language Um, so a galilean jew would have probably been able to write in greek but remember most of your gospel is oral tradition Uh, most of it's written 30 30 40 years after jesus has died um, and it's been passed down and passed down and passed down matthew and luke borrowed from mark as i said but mark opens it up not with a what you notice i tell you this every christmas And you probably don't pay me any attention. What's missing in Mark? A a birth story. There is no birth story in Mark. Remember that. It's going to be Bible trivia one day. Don't embarrass me by by saying that there's a birth story. Yeah. You were talking about Greek. Does it help to to know Greek, to understand Scripture? It's probably probably helpful to understand the Greek language. When I was at MTS and when I was going through the methods process, they didn't make us take Greek or Hebrew. So I have not taken Greek or Hebrew. What I tell people is, you could learn Greek or Hebrew a little bit, but it's probably better to, to read scholars who actually are scholars in Greek and Hebrew, because they're going to give they can tell you what you need to know about it, and they're better at, at translating. That'd be like me. That'd be like me. I took, um, I took a, a year of Spanish in high school. Um, does that mean that I can go to Honduras? And just carry on a conversation. If that conversation is, Hello, how are you? My name's Keith. Where's the bathroom? I'm great. If it gets much more than that, I don't know the subtle nuances of, uh, uh, of things. So I stay out of it. Um, if we, with the Hebrew and the Greek, it'd be better to get a, a scholarly study Bible that was written by folks who knew it and they could tell you the subtle differences between this word and that word. I, that's what I do. I find I find those study texts that'll give me here's what this word means in Greek, and here's where else it's used in the Bible, and how it conno- uh, what the connotation is for today. No if you love foreign languages, I mean, it'd be a great thing to to, to learn. Um, uh, and and same way with Hebrew, uh, my Old Testament professor was a Hebrew scholar, and uh, he loved the fact that he knew Hebrew. If y'all ever met a, somebody who studied a lot of Hebrew or Greek, and they love the fact that they know, it, know a lot of it, so every sermon just ends up being 40 references to what this word is in Hebrew. I find that a lot. Um, uh, so it's good to know it uh, if, you can, if you can figure it out. They didn't make me take it, and uh, when I was in school, I hate to admit it, but if they didn't make me do it, um, I wasn't going to do it. Uh, that sounds bad, but it's true. When I got to the end of my undergrad in music education, I needed one, one three-hour course uh, to keep my scholarship. And they said, well, take something that really challenges you and that, that, you'll, um, that, you'll, that you're interested in and love. You know what I took? Music appreciation for non-music majors. You know why? Because I could sleep through that class. And so that's what I did. Uh, so... When it comes to education, don't expect me to go above and beyond much of time. Uh, but that, you know, it, it is helpful to know, know that Mark, most of your New Testament is probably written in Greek, a mixture of Greek, Aramaic. Most of your Old Testament is going to be Hebrew. Um, and you'll find that to be the case. But Mark starts off, not with the birth story, but the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So what does he do how does he start off his uh gospel he appeals back to the old testament that's important to mark we're going to set our story we're going to set the good news in light of the old testament in the early church there was a there was a, a movement afoot to leave the old testament out of the bible it didn't get it didn't get very well it did get pretty far they had to they had to squash it down but they said the Old Testament is as much a witness about what God is doing is the New Testament. We, the New Testament uh, supersedes the Old, but we need the Old. wine Because Gospels like Mark harken back to it. So he starts there. The great part about it is it says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way. For the Lord make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Picture the scene. What did I tell you about political, social, and religious life in Israel at the turn of the millennium Well, it's not even the millennia. It, 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 from B.C. to A.D. What did I tell you? Jerusalem is it. Jerusalem is the center, and all, be all. When Mark starts, what does he say about Jerusalem? Anything? Nothing. God is not moving where the people think God is. What are the people doing? They're having to leave Jerusalem and go where? Into the wilderness to find God. What does that tell us churchy folks sometimes? Sometimes we think God's going to work where we want God to work, but sometimes God's out in the, the wilderness. And if, if you carry on that theme of Old Testament, um, uh, if you carry on that theme to Old Testament, I'm trying to see, I get carried away and forget what time it is. Somebody wave at me when it's time to stop, Okay. I know y'all but just yawned like 18 people did Sunday when I was looking at them. I won't call any names, but three of them yawned at the exact same time. And I thought that point was good. Uh, uh, as, we, um, as we look at this, they're moving out from Jerusalem and they're going into the wilderness. Mark's talking about the Old Testament through Isaiah, but Mark is also hearkening back to what? The wilderness. Anybody else remember any wilderness times in the Old Testament? They wandered in the wilderness for a good long while. Throughout the the course of the Scripture, one thing becomes clear to me as I read it. Well, two things. One, uh, people that follow God uh, come up with the same destructive patterns over and over and over again. We see that over and over. The second thing is God is typically more responded to where? In the wilderness, than he is when things are good. Sometimes God has to get us away from our comfort in order to, to talk to us. We have to be willing to be made uncomfortable for God in order for God to talk to us. So that's that's what we find. He jumps in uh, after after this about John. He he wants us to realize that this crazy person in the wilderness is talking more about God than the priest are in the church. And John captures people's imaginations. He's saying something that is firing in their minds the possibility, and he's offering them something beyond what they're used to. John says some pretty wild stuff, and he says some pretty harsh stuff. And some folks, I'm sure, are just coming to hear his crazy talk. But what he's given them in their crazy talk is this conversation about how God is breaking into their world and the people up on the hill, and when I say the hill, I mean Jerusalem, the people on the hill may not get it, but we are looking for it. Do you remember what we said John might have been uh, before Christmas? I know that's a long time ago. We said he was probably, he may have been an Essene, Uh, the Essenes. We're kind of like the Pharisees, except they're the people that said the only way we can faithfully live out our religion is to break away from culture, break away from society, and just go live in the desert. And they moved to the hills in the desert, and they are the ones that are responsible for these little things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You remember those? The Essenes are the ones that hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're the ones that lived in the caves out there. They're the ones that do that. So when they say a voice of one calling in the wilderness and other gospels will talk about how he wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey, that was something the scenes did. So John is one of the crazy bunch that left and moved out. He's one of the ones that's living out in the, the wilderness. We're not, let's not read the other stories into Mark's gospel. We find that Mark is proclaiming pretty quickly that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming and John, the Baptist appeared in the wilderness you know, and we said the whole Judean countryside came and what are they doing? What do we need in order for revival to start at the second part of verse five? What does it say? How do you get revival? How do you inspire a nation? How do you make sure that you're prepared for the coming of Christ? I think John lays it out. What does he say? They confess their sins and they're baptized by John in the Jordan. Um, He wore uh, clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around the waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. There are some that make the distinction between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, um, uh, and it was was not an uncommon practice in Judaism. This symbolic washing uh, was a symbol in Judaism. But he also says, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John saying, what I'm doing is symbolic. What he's going to do is this great spiritual awakening. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then Jesus shows up. Don't read into it any of the other Gospels. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do, especially as we read Mark or as we read other things. Make sure when you're reading it that you read what's in Mark. Don't go, well, Mark left some stuff out. No, Mark is Mark. Matthew's Matthew. Luke's Luke. John is John. Read Mark for what it says, because you'll want to read into Mark, Matthew, and Luke, because Matthew and Luke borrowed so much from Mark. Um, so you'll think, well, I know that there's more to this story, yeah, if you bring them all together. Uh, at this time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. so it doesn't give us any it doesn't give us any lead up it you know what's the other story say? John goes, you know I don't need to baptize you you should baptize me no this is that's another gospel. this one just says Jesus was baptized by John. Why? Because the people saw John as a prophet who was anointing people to follow God. This is going to be where Jesus comes into his own. But here's what it says. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What does it not say right there that we like to read into it? We like to read into it that perhaps everybody saw a dove. Is that what Mark says? Mark says what? He, well, It says like a dove, but it says what else? What pronoun is used as the action? He. He. Not everybody, but Jesus saw it. What is Mark trying to say when he just says Jesus sees this dove? Who is the baptism for then? The baptism is for Jesus because Jesus is fixing to start his Ministry and Jesus needs affirmation from God that He is who He says He is. We like to think Jesus was roaming around going, "Yep, I'm God, and I'm in charge." Well, Jesus is just as much human as He is God. And if you're a human and your mama tells you that you're the son of God, do you think that perhaps you need a little bit of uh, affirmation? Because your mama's supposed to think you're pretty special. Um, and that you're pretty amazing, but uh, you just make sure. Well, this is the affirmation that Jesus needs. If you read it, though, it says that heaven was being torn open. The word for torn here, here, Bob, I'll give you some Greek translation um, because I actually looked this one up. The word for torn used here uh, in Greek is actually schizo. So schizo means this violent, you know, Ripping. It's not this. Here's what we think. We think Jesus went down and he came up and all of a sudden God just took the puffy clouds and went, and all of a sudden this quiet little dove just floats down and lands on Jesus' shoulder and goes, hey, Jesus, you're awesome, and then just flies off. But that's not what Mark tells us. Mark tells us that the heavens are ripped open in a violent fashion, and this dove comes down. And this dove is not this peaceful uh, symbol that we like to make it. Uh, this dove is a symbol of God's prophetic word coming down. And it says at once, I don't, like my, I don't like the NIV right here so much. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. That is not a great translation of that word. If we want to translate it Faithfully, I think it needs to say the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Yeah. I think according to Mark's gospel, it says that. The other gospels kind of painted it. We'll we'll see. The other gospels kind of paint a different picture. Mark's trying to emphasize that Jesus is getting the affirmation. Why does he need the affirmation? Because he's fixing to be driven into the wilderness. It's so that he can make it through his wilderness time. Notice we have two references to what in the same chapter of Mark: the wilderness. God is going to speak in the wilderness. He's speaking through Mark, and I mean through John, in the wilderness, and he's going to send Jesus into the wilderness. And it says there, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild angels and angels, uh, animals and angels attended him. We go, that's a pretty pitiful temptation story, right? We like the one about the bread and the temple and and all that stuff. Mark doesn't give you that. What does Mark say? He was there 40 days. Why is that significant? What did Mark give you? There's only 40 days. Does that sound biblical to anybody? What is that? 40 days. What about the ark? You know, 40 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights. He's out there... uh, but mainly when we hear wilderness, the Spirit drove, uh, a great translation, even more than drove, is thrown out. Jesus is thrown out into the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness comes from this Jewish tradition, and it's, it's meant to symbolize an untamed and undomesticated land. But it's in that untamed and undomesticated land that Israel finds God most often because without God, what's going to happen? They're going to die. Um, uh, if, if, if you throw me in the wilderness uh, without some help from the Lord, I ain't going to make it. Uh, they aren't either. Uh, I think that's why Mark tells about wild animals. It seems you talk about the, the Greek word mm. so that same translation in Latin means mm. split. Split. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, with that that is we were about a split, a split. A lack, lack translation of that word being split? It's actually splitting them off from Right. Else. And it's a violent split. It's not like a it's not like an You know in the Methodist church we like to talk about amicable separation. It's not an amicable separation, it's a it's a violent split. And and it's at that point that he gets thrown out there into that. we don't want to read the temptation stories in Matthew and Luke into that. Uh the temptation in mark could possibly simply be uh to go back to leave the wilderness and go back into comfort and you go well that's pretty simple well isn't that what we all have isn't that a lot of our temptation i remember and i hadn't watched it all because i I was not old enough to watch it, really, when it came out. But there was a movie several years ago that Jesus doesn't blink in the entire movie. You know which one I'm talking about? The Last Temptation of Christ, I don't think Jesus blinks the whole movie. I think that is on purpose. Uh, but I've only seen the very end. I, I hadn't seen the rest of it. I know it caused a lot of stir. Um, but I've seen the very end of it. And at the very end, after uh, the whole movie has made Christians angry the whole time... It, it, it does, a, it does this, this cinematic thing where it shows uh, Jesus choosing not to have that life, but to stay on the cross for us. Now, Christians got real mad because of uh, the rest of the movie showed what if Jesus had, had escaped crucifixion and lived a full life and they didn't like seeing Jesus like that. I hadn't seen the movie, so I, I'm not going to comment on that part. But here's what I would tell you. I think Jesus' temptation the whole time he was on earth was to avoid the, the cross. I think that's the temptation. I don't think food and power and all that have anything to do other than Satan's trying to tell Jesus, you don't have to do the life that God has laid out for you. That saving these folks can be done another way. Just pick a different way. Just come out of the wilderness and take your kingship and everything will be alright. I think that's the temptation. Uh, like if you're hungry, I understand you want bread. If, if, if you want power, you want power. But it's really all about should I go the way God drives me or should I take the easy way out? That's what Mark is trying to, to tell us. Turning back seems easier than a difficult spiritual journey. Um, uh, but, but, but Jesus stays for the full 40 days, but then he comes back. Uh, uh, and Mark tells us that after John was betrayed, uh, that we, preached on, well, we I preached on that several weeks ago. We talked about it's always a good time for good news. And remember why I said it was always a good time for good news? It's because John had just been arrested. So Jesus gets back from the wilderness and there's bad news. And yet he still starts his message because after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. It seems like that would have been a good time to reassess what you're doing. When your cousin who just baptized you, who was doing God's work, gets put in prison, it might be a good time for a preacher to say, maybe this isn't the best time to be preaching. And yet Jesus does what? He goes to do it immediately to proclaim the good news. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news. What's the first active form of Jesus's ministry. Um, and, and we're going to get into that next week. I want you to, Yep. I want you. I don't want to get into this yet. Uh, the first public act of Jesus' ministry besides his baptism and his preaching begins in the 24th verse uh, or in the 21st verse, really. Uh, So if you didn't read Mark this week, uh, go back and read this and read it, read the 21st verse uh, all the way through through the, the second chapter and read it in this understanding. Jesus has to start his ministry somewhere, but it's very important what he does when he starts. You only get one chance to do your first act of ministry. And each gospel has a different first act. This one, um, we're going to see him driving out impure spirits in in church. Uh, And another gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, what's his first act of ministry? Turn the water into wine. And remember what Jesus didn't want to do? Turn water into wine. He didn't want that to be his first act of ministry, but he did it anyway. Both of those, and when we look at their first act of ministry, it sets the tone for the whole book. Whatever you do first is going to set up your... your have you ever noticed that uh, most of the action of a movie or most of the premise of a movie is told to you in the first 15 minutes? You're supposed to know what's going on in the first 15 minutes. Why do they do that? Because if you don't know in the first 15 minutes, what are you going to do? You're going to go to sleep or you're going to change the channel. So they set it up in the first 15. They spend the next 45 explaining it and give you the last conclusion in the 15. The Gospels do that too. They give you this, the, these first acts of ministry. And throughout that first act, usually what you'll see in the Gospel is Whatever was a driving theme of his ministry at the beginning ends up being a driving theme throughout. And we're going to talk about that. So read chapter 1, 21 through the end of the chapter. Any questions on this first part of Mark, just remember um, uh, God speaking to Jesus Don't read the other Gospels into it. It doesn't diminish the other Gospels. They're just different, and they're telling a different story. In this one, it's emphasizing that Jesus knows who He is. In the other Gospels, it kind of emphasizes, they're trying to say everybody needs to know who Jesus is. Um, So, any questions? All right. Well, I'll see y'all next week.